0: Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales talks about what drives Wikipedia. Johan Norberg gives a few reasons to look forward to the future. Phil Graham lays out some facts about the financial crisis. And Randall O'Toole discusses how government impacts homeownership. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Donald Trump won what was a surprising election if you examined pretty much any poll ahead of time. And of course, uh, when he becomes president uh, this month in January, he will inherit uh, a wide variety of powers, and some of those powers have been delegated to the presidency. Uh, over many, many years of congressional abdication. And to talk about that a little bit, I'm talking with Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of The Power Problem, and Gene Healy, a Vice President at Cato and author of The Cult of the Presidency. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, so, having hey. us. So to begin here, um, I guess before uh, Donald Trump takes office, What are some of the things that have happened just in the last eight years of the Obama administration that uh, should make us concerned about war powers shifting to the executive?
1: Well, there's this uh, phrase that Dick Cheney was fond of that uh, you know we'd like to leave the presidency stronger than we found it, and most presidents do, and Barack Obama is no exception. And one of the ways in which he radically expanded presidential power was uh, over war, uh, George W. Bush, uh, despite claiming the authority to go to war uh, on his own authority uh, anywhere in the world, actually got congressional authorization for the two wars that he that he fought. Uh, Barack Obama has uh, you know, launched one war of choice in Libya, and uh, in our latest war uh, for the last two years in the Middle East against ISIS, he's uh, completed the transformation of the original uh, authorization for the use of military force that Congress passed after 9-11 into this sort of open-ended, blank-check, permanent delegation of congressional war authority. And now he's going to hand all those powers over to Donald J. Trump.
2: Right. I think that the the cases of Libya and the war against ISIS are are different uh, but equally disturbing. So, in the case of Libya, uh, the, the president, knowing that he was likely to face pretty considerable opposition in, in Congress, um, claimed that the authority he required was, um, uh, was essentially granted by the U.N. Security Council of all places, because the U.N. Uh, charter is a ratified treaty, then it therefore had the force of law, and therefore there was no need for a declaration of war. Um, that's not the way I interpret it. That's not the way. A number of other uh, constitutional legal scholars interpret it. In the case of the AUMF for uh, post 9-11, Gene's absolutely right. The way that this has been twisted and shifted, and, uh, and the goalposts moved, uh, really sort of begs the question: If the president is able to to wage war against ISIS using the same authorities that were granted to George W. Bush in September 2001, uh, then where exactly could uh, Donald Trump not use the same authorities? And I I struggle to identify even a single place where he could not uh, use it. There's no there's no temporal limit. There's no geographic limit. Uh, and we've stretched the meaning of al-Qaeda affiliated groups uh, past the breaking point.
1: Chris is right. We've stretched that meaning so far past the breaking point that now under an authorization passed 15 years ago to go after al-Qaeda, we're going after ISIS, a group that is in open and active hostilities with al-Qaeda, the original uh, target of this resolution. Uh, You know, a conflict that regularly generates headlines like uh, ISIS affiliate beheads uh, Al Qaeda uh, okay, leader. Really uh, it's uh, so it's a it's a it's proven to be an immensely stretchable uh, piece of legal language, uh, and has been stretched by the president past the uh, the point of reason.
0: All right, so I want to refer to to one thing, and um, I don't know if this is cold comfort given the fact that. Donald Trump, as president, will inherit all of these powers. The question, one question is whether or not he would use them. So, to Chris Preble, I would say that uh, Donald Trump last week said, "We will stop racing to topple foreign regimes that we know th- nothing about, that we shouldn't be involved with." How mm-hmm.
2: credible is that statement? Well, again, there's the difference between hope and expectation. I, I certainly hope he means what he says, but I, but I'm, I have to confess that I'm not. Um, I'm not taking that to the bank. Uh, He also made a number of comments about striking our enemies with extreme uh, prejudice or words, uh, you know, not uh, suitable for a PG-13 audience. Um, And... I think that the part of this—the way that the presidential powers have evolved that we haven't yet addressed, which, which again, Trump is going to inherit, is the marrying of uh, dubious legal authority with uh, new technologies that allow the president to strike without actually toppling a foreign government, without actually sending tens or even over a hundred thousand troops to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but waging war by remote control in at least seven countries right now, simultaneously, uh, only two or maybe maybe three of which could reasonably be covered by the original uh, the Iraq and post 9-11 AUMFs.
0: I'm thinking of the uh, Barack Obama White House uh, where you had Robert Gates and uh, one of the uh, communications uh, people in the White House, uh, Robert Gates calling what we've done in other countries not war but kinetic action, and the White House communications guy saying, well, it's not— hostilities because there aren't boots on the ground. Right.
1: Make love, not kinetic military action. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, like, like uh, past presidents and uh, past administrations, the, the you know, like uh, Harry Truman with the Korean police action, uh, the Obama administration employed euphemism uh, to—in an attempt to conceal what they were doing. Uh, one significant I mean, Gene, thing about remember that— remember
2: Gene used to say they waged war on the English language, <laughs> as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: w- one of, but w- one of the consequences it, it had is uh, the, uh, the, the issue of hostilities that you just mentioned. Uh, the War Powers Resolution that was passed in 1973 uh, over Richard Nixon's veto uh, has never been terribly effective at restraining presidential adventurism abroad— Uh, But one of Obama's innovations in Libya was, after the uh, 60-day clock had run down on the War Powers Resolution and when it became clear that our uh, NATO allies could not complete the mission on their own, uh, Obama actually had to go lawyer-shopping within his own administration to find somebody that was willing to say that, uh, under the language of the War Powers Resolution, uh, it was you were not involved in quote unquote hostilities if you were bombing a country that couldn't easily hit you back, which, when you think about it, I, I mean, I obviously violates the the plain uh, language of the statute and uh, common sense, but it's also a, a, a an absurd doctrine for a, uh, a you know a reputedly liberal humanitarian president to advance. It's basically saying, it's not war if you're just killing foreigners. Uh, war is something that happens when when actual Americans might get shot at.
2: We've carefully selected the weakest right. adversaries. <laughs> right, but the ability and, and one of the other factors in in drone warfare is the illusion that the targets uh, will will not be able to strike back. Uh, that's false. Uh, in fact, uh, we we know a number of cases, not n- merely since 9/11, but even before that time, where weak countries uh, and and weak actors respond by acts of terrorism. So, you know, 10 or 15 or, or, or longer hence, uh, if someone was, uh, if someone's family or or neighbors or cousins were uh, victims of these kinetic military actions short of war, uh, supposedly, um, we won't count that as retaliation or a response to our aggression. We'll just add that to a long list of terrorist incidents that are sort of just seemingly coming out of the ether.
1: Yeah. And in fact, those, uh, you know, the, that, that sort of blowback is actually uh, going to be used, uh, you know, wh- if and when it happens, will be used as further justification for more droning. Right. Uh, it's sort of a bureaucratic perpetual motion machine.
2: <laughs> Wasn't your line, the droning will continue until morale improves? <laughs> I think that was, that's another genism that I like. So, uh,
0: looking at the people that uh, Donald Trump has selected for—to run the, the most critical— uh, cabinet posts related to war: uh, General Mattis, who uh, was a recent departure from uh, the Pentagon, and Rex Tillerson, who is the uh, CEO of ExxonMobil.
2: I-, I can't see in either of these uh, gentlemen um, a, s- a strong desire to push back on this concentration of power in the hands of the executive. Now, again, I would love to be proved wrong. Uh, it is possible that Mattis, uh, having supervised and led and and written condolence letters to the Marines under his command over his long career, um, is especially wary, as are many Americans, about sending uh, troops into foreign places to fix problems that are notoriously difficult or impossible to fix. Um, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean he's opposed to the so-called light footprint that doesn't rely on large numbers of troops on the ground. So, so uh, again, I've, I've written about how I have some sort of hope that—and he's even made comments to this effect publicly—that uh, he doesn't like the idea of sending U.S. troops pl- into places without really understanding what they're yes. doing. In the case of Tillerson, um, as a businessman, he's obviously had dealings in, uh, I think, actually, uh, Emma counted six different continents where ExxonMobil is engaged and effectively has its own uh, private uh, foreign policy of its own. Uh, war is bad for business, uh, as is often said, uh, but it's not immediately clear that uh, drone wars are necessarily bad for business, and especially if the alternative is uh, many U.S. troops on the ground and a, a very visible presence that engenders a lot of resistance, uh, then maybe Tillerson, too, uh, will, uh, will if anything, sort of uh, push us even farther along the lines of, uh, of these remote control uh, light footprint wars.
0: And I don't want to uh, focus too much on this, but the fact that uh, Donald Trump has made such uh, angry remarks regarding trade uh, certainly seem would seem to raise tensions with countries that we ought to be thinking about as partners.
2: Sure, uh, I, I think it. I mean, what he's talking about mostly in the short term is China, and to my knowledge, we aren't yet droning China, so um, that's good news. Uh, but uh, no, you're right. Uh, I think there's a there's a, a real tension uh, within the Trump administration uh, forthcoming uh, over questions of of trade.
0: Now, I spoke with uh, uh, Mike Lee when the Cato Institute was in. Utah, and of course, he has a project that he's working with with mostly Republicans called the Article I Project, an attempt to reassert some congressional prerogatives back from the executive branch. War is notably absent from that reassertion of powers, and arguably, it's the most important thing to reassert from the executive.
1: Yeah, that, that's a domestic-focused fo- effort. Um, uh, but I do think there is, uh, particularly in this administration, some chance of bipartisan cooperation on these issues. I mean, the uh, the vice presidential nominee of uh, the president's own party, uh, President Obama's own party, uh, Tim Kaine, has been saying for over two years that the legal authority on which the, the president— uh, claims the, the power to launch over 16,000 airstrikes on, on ISIS in Iraq and Syria, that that legal authority is non-existent. Uh, Rand Paul has been uh, uh, a leader on this issue as well. And I, I think it's uh, something that people are increasingly concerned about on both sides of the aisle, which is not to say that anything will actually get done on it.
0: So the upside of a Clinton loss may be that Tim Kaine is uh, still, <laughs> it's it's still, still in the Senate. Senate. Yeah, in, in Senate. fact,
2: if, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the very first speech that he gave on the floor right. of the Senate after the election was on this question of executive war power and the and the uh, authorities uh, under which these wars are being conducted. So he hasn't he hasn't lost sight of this at all.
0: So a, a lot of people I've noticed uh, have what's it's basically a trope at this point is that uh, a whole lot of people are now rediscovering that dissent is patriotic that uh, opposing wars is a good thing to do, and uh, maybe there there might be some significant push to actually rein that in in this administration.
2: Right, I I do think you see the tension um, to the extent, you know, the ideological divide, partisan divide, what have you, um, part of the reason why the the Democrats so far have been unenthusiastic about Senator Lee's initiative is because I think for many Democrats, executive power has been instrumental in advancing their domestic policy ag- agenda over many decades. I mean, from Franklin Roosevelt to Lyndon Johnson, um, and now and to Barack Obama. Um, but on the other hand, uh, they. Uh, are likely to rediscover uh, the benefits of constraining the president's uh, war powers, and even, of course, to some extent, his ability uh, to uh, to pass uh, to uh, m- you know move domestic policy on his own. Yeah, Donald
1: Trump is like a, a thought experiment. Uh a libertarian would make up to try to get a liberal friend to see the dangers of concentrated executive power. So if this doesn't concentrate their minds wonderfully, uh, you know, nothing will.
2: I've spoken to a number of of my, my friends on the left who, since the election, who This really has come as a bit of a revelation to them because for for a number of years, and certainly for the last eight, um, they've been quite wary of uh, encouraging Congress to become more involved in foreign policy. Because the few areas where Congress has actually wanted to be involved, uh, from their perspective, hasn't been very constructive. And I and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But the fact remains that having uh, oversight uh, was is clearly spelled out in the in the Constitution, and not merely oversight uh, and. So I think you're already seeing Um, in terms of the response even from the the nominees that uh, that uh, Donald Trump has put up for these various positions uh, that there is likely to be resistance both from Republicans and Democrats Uh, I think it's happening to a certain extent already
0: all right So what might that resistance look like going forward aside from nomination? right?
2: So the nomination process is pretty traditional standard process and 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 some nominees may face uh, considerable resistance, but the other thing that the Congress uh, can and and has traditionally done is, is hearings, investigations. Uh, and I think that process is also uh, well underway. Uh, the allegations of Russian interference in the US election, uh, whether or not you believe that they had any impact on the actual results, the fact that uh, the, the Russians were even attempting this is something worth worth studying and, and uh, making light of, uh, kind of showing, not making light of, <laughs> bringing, <laughs> bringing, to, to light. bringing to light. <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna make light of it. Uh, bringing to light. So that process is going to happen. And I think that uh, in the same way that there were a few efforts over the last eight years to ask questions about President Obama's decisions uh, in terms of war and peace, I think that's likely to be uh, occur under the Trump administration, but even more so, because I think already there are some Republican senators—Rand uh, Paul, of course, most importantly, also Senator Lee—who um, have, have already signaled that they're going to push back if, if they sense the president is, uh, is uh, governing more hawkishly than he campaigned.
1: And uh, we don't know what uh, new wars are going to be carried out and new, and new new theaters of war are going to be entered into under these expanded authorities. I mean, Donald Trump occasionally uh, and just recently has, you know, makes appealing noises about uh, restraint, uh, about not engaging in, in regime change. On the other hand, you uh, you know, it's, uh, he, he seems unable to restrain himself from uh, using Twitter to criticize Alec Baldwin's pr- impersonation of him on Saturday Night Live. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, someone who gives you the impression of uh, a cool, calm, and collected customer who can resist the international provocation of the week.
0: It wasn't that long ago when there were multiple members of the U.S. Senate who wanted people who would who would have been declared enemy combatants who were U.S. citizens in the United States to, prior to trial, being stripped of their citizenship? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean that right. That's a pretty that's a pretty striking thing to think about in light right. of this presidency. Right. And
2: the one person we haven't mentioned yet is Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. Again, there's absolutely no reason to believe that he would. Uh, in any way push back on that? If anything, I think he's going to be pushing in the direction of, uh, you know, expanding the the president's power to to strip people of their citizenship. Men, we haven't brought up, uh, of course, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, in the case of Anwar Al-Awlaki, um, uh, effectively, you know, codified uh, the pr- the practice of uh, you know judge, jury, and executioner—the very thing that we thought once upon a time the president of the United States couldn't do. Um, now, again, this isn't a, this isn't an authority that he created out of whole cloth. The process was certainly begun by George W. Bush after 9-11. But again, the combination of of technology and in um, the context of the uh, counterterrorism global counterterrorism campaign uh, provided uh, an opportunity uh, for Obama to, to do this. And I think, again, there's, there's nothing that Trump has said, uh, to my knowledge, over the course of the campaign uh, that suggests that was uh, improper in, in, in any sense. And,
1: uh, you know, whether strictly legal or constitutional or not, the actions of one president create a sort of de facto precedent for the next person to come along. So, uh, you know, if and when Donald Trump uh, orders the uh, execution of an American citizen by a uh, flying robot death kite, uh, it's going to be hard for anyone to uh, get too exercised about it because even the, uh, quote-unquote, liberal constitutional law professor— president, this—the reluctant warrior, uh, Barack Obama, had, had taken that action before. Uh, if Donald Trump uh, decides to carry out uh, an unauthorized war uh, with—past uh, the limits of the War Powers Resolution, uh, he can invoke the uh, interesting uh, and original argument that, that Obama—the Obama administration came up with, that— uh, it's not hostilities if you bomb someone that that, that can't hit you back. Uh, he's uh, going to, uh, unless Congress uh, begins restraining his authorities, he's going to have a, a colorable claim to uh, go after just about any jihadist group in the world under the ever-expanding authority of the 2001 AUMF. So uh, it's really quite a formidable set of powers that Obama is handing over to a man that Obama himself has said is unfit to be president and can't be trusted with a Twitter feed so shouldn't get the nuclear launch codes.
0: If you were looking for Uh, some canaries in the coal mine Mm -hmm. in terms of of things looking like they're going to go very badly with respect to this administration. Mm -hmm. And it's not just its assertion of war powers, but using them. Mm -hmm. I remember Barack Obama said he had certain war powers, even when he decided he wasn't going to use them in Syria. But uh, what
2: thoughts do you have on that? I think that Trump has made a number of comments in terms of uh, you know, taking the fight to ISIS and bombing the blank out of them and uh, and things like that. So uh, th- the best thing that could happen between now and the inauguration or soon thereafter is for ISIS in Iraq to be um, even more degraded than it is already from the ongoing campaign on the ground. So literally uh, taking targets away uh... from this this campaign uh, i don't think the war is going to end then uh, but suitable targets may, you know are are being rolled up uh... you know day by day um, but then the question becomes well where else does isis supposedly uh... you know rear its head uh... you know libya nigeria somalia afghanistan i mean the the possibilities are endless uh... and once again any group anywhere any person anywhere who professes to be an ISIS affiliate, follower, in you know, inspired by, etc. Um, uh, that's that's the next thing I worry about because it seems to me that the, that that is uh, there there is you know practically no limit to where that could go. Uh,
1: I worry about the reaction uh, in the aftermath of a significant domestic terrorist attack uh, and what actions that uh, President Trump will take uh, in the aftermath of such an attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've said, he does not, in his public behavior, uh, give off the impression of uh, someone who who uh, wants to exercise restraint, uh, you know, take down the temperature. Um, he is uh, the opposite of the—the uh, the, uh, mr Spock cool uh, uh, personality that that uh that Barack Obama often got criticized for. I was thinking when uh, reading about uh, uh, general mattis and uh, some of the positive coverage of him he does seem like a, an impressive guy and uh, someone by all accounts who wouldn't hesitate to to give the president the truth with the uh, the bark off, and then it occurred to me that uh, you know we're, we're sort of talking ourselves into thinking that the, the the big hope for prudence and restraint in the in this administration from wise counsel is a guy whose nickname is Mad Dog. <laughs> so there we are. Uh,
0: you mentioned a terrorist attack. I can recall during the 2000 campaign. George W. Bush was talking about, well, we don't want to be the, we don't want to be doing nation building, we don't want to be involved in all of these uh, conflicts around the globe, and then 9/11, right? And the, that that footing changed dramatically, right?
2: And also in terms of the, the response domestically, I mean, I think President Bush. Um, in the days immediately after 9-11 set a tone for who the enemy would be. Now, again, I think he defined it too broadly, but he could have defined it broader still, which is to say uh, anyone uh, like any of the 9-11 hijackers, that is to say Arab or you know, from Saudi Arabia or Egypt or go down the list, um, and I think that some of the things that Donald Trump has said and some of his other advisors, like Mike Flynn, uh, for example, uh, have hinted at. I think even General Kelly, the, the new Department of Homeland Security uh, 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 chief, uh, have hinted at uh, sort of defining the enemy more broadly than merely those who have perpetrated the attacks and organized uh, uh, them. Well, and it,
0: with Barack Obama in the 2008 campaign, talked about— uh, not fighting dumb wars but his rhetoric from the campaign trail through even the first few months of his presidency expanded the range of who he was talking about internationally with respect to enemies
1: mm-hmm. well by the by the time he uh, literally by the time he hit the stage at Oslo to accept the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009 he had at that point in his presidency launched more drone strikes than George W Bush he's since gone on to launch ten times the uh, number of drone strikes that uh, conducted during the Bush administration. And in fact, the uh, the, the perpetual and constant uh, level of quote unquote, kinetic military action uh, is really astonishing when you when you stop to think about it. Over Labor Day weekend, uh, just this summer, Uh, We hit uh, either six or seven countries uh, with airstrikes uh, over that long weekend. weekend. And, you know, barely anyone noticed. Right. Uh, He is going to be because in large part because of his own expansion of presidential war making authority, uh, he's going to be the first president. Uh, in American history, to the first two-term ter- president to have been at war every single day of his presidency. All right
2: during the first year of his presidency, President Obama presided over essentially the tripling of the number of troops in Afghanistan. One of, part of that was initiated by George W. Bush, but Barack Obama had an opportunity to reverse that decision and he didn't. Um, and uh, you know, Gene is right that this this the ability to wage war by remote control, uh, by, you know, by drones and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, where does it end? The answer is we, we don't know, but there, but the trajectory is going clearly, uh, in the, uh, in the upswing. The one thing I'll say that, that, uh, that Ben Friedman likes to say is that drone wars allow you to get into wars, but not to actually win them. Uh, and so, what we may see is just we're just chasing our tail uh, and and creating you know more targets than uh, than we possibly can deal with efficiently. All right, Chris Prebble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato
0: Institute, and Gene Healy, uh, Vice President at the Cato Institute. Chris is author of The Power Problem. Gene is author of The Cult of the Presidency, and of course following... Follow uh, our continued commentary and podcasts, etc., at our website, cato.org. Jimmy Wales is the founder of Wikipedia, the sprawling online encyclopedia driven by contributions from users. In the first Joseph K. McLaughlin lecture at the Cato Institute, Wales describes how Wikipedia's central insight was driven by the work of F.A. Hayek.
3: I just did want to talk a little bit, since we're here in the Hayek Auditorium, about the influence of Hayek on my thinking. So Hayek uh, has uh, one of his most famous essays was uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, American Economic Review, 1945. If you haven't read it, you don't really need to be an economist to read it. Google it, it's actually available online, it's very accessible. And basically what he's talking about, he discusses the problem that we wish to solve when we try to construct a rational economic order. There is an analogy here to Wikipedia, it is only an analogy. So basically what Hayek said is that the problem we're facing, and by the way, this at that time was a really live intellectual dispute, the question of whether a centrally planned economy could outperform a market economy. And and what he pointed out was that the key question there is, for a centrally planned economy, you need to pull in all the information, all the information that you need, and then you could, you know, the advance of economic science and mathematics, you could solve the system of simultaneous equation and determine the optimum uh, factors of production, and, and there you go. And he pointed out, well, but the, the problem is we can't gather all that information to the center, or it would be too expensive to gather all the information to the center. Uh, and given that, the distributing, so the question is, do we, do we bring all the information in and then make decisions in the center, or do we push decision-making out to the endpoints? So by analogy, this this is part of the concept of Wikipedia, that we could try, in a very traditional way, like Britannica or something like that, to hire a group of experts and gather all the information of the world and synthesize it and put it out in that way, um, and we would come up with something that might be fairly decent, but very small, very limited. Um, and errors would be very hard to correct because we would have a small group of experts and if they were wrong, they, they might not listen to other people and so on and so forth. Or the Wikipedia model is, push all the decision making out to the endpoints. We, we let people come in, take up whatever interest they have, uh, and they work on those entries. Uh, and oftentimes what we find is that the people who are experts, like expertise, is very widely distributed in society, and it's not necessarily falling along professional lines. I'll just give an example. Um, completely randomly, uh, like any other geeky person, I've, I've taken up a new interest, and I don't even know if I can explain why this came up on me, but I've become very interested in the history of aviation. So the history of airplanes and the early developments of jets. I don't know why. This isn't something I've ever been interested in before, but I've lately been reading a lot in Wikipedia about it. And it's astonishing to read. If you want to go and read in Wikipedia about the history of the DC-8 passenger jet, um, it's incredible. Like This huge, long entry, including every variant of the DC-8. They put out many different versions over the years. All of those are listed there. You couldn't pay anyone to write this stuff. Uh, It would cost a fortune. And also, you wouldn't necessarily find that that person who knows the most about it is sitting somewhere in a university and knows something that's so esoteric that no one else could possibly understand. In fact, what you find is there are airplane geeks and hobbyists who have found each other online. They discuss these things. They discuss and they debate and they work on this. And so by pushing the decision making out to the endpoints, we don't have to sort of communicate all that information into the center and judge it. They work on it together. They, They discuss it, they debate it, and so on. And they do so, as I say, under this set of guiding principles, shared concepts. So one of the main concepts is that Wikipedia is an encyclopedia. What does this mean? There's a whole page in Wikipedia called What What Wikipedia Is Not, one of our policy pages. And What Wikipedia Is Not is it's not a history book. Uh, It's not a a library. Uh, You know, for example, very, very early in the history of Wikipedia, someone uh, started uploading. They uploaded the full text of Hamlet. And we had a little discussion and debate to say, oh, does this belong here? And people were like, yes, well, it's it's not a copyright. It's really important historically. But we said, "Mm, no, actually... The full text of Hamlet is not an encyclopedia article. Yes, that deserves to live somewhere online. We have a project now called Wikisource where that sort of thing lives. But in fact, our entry on Hamlet shouldn't be the full text of Hamlet. It should be the history and you you know in your mind exactly what what the Wikipedia entry would look like for Hamlet. Uh, Wikipedia is not uh, YouTube. So as much as I love a funny cat video, they don't belong in Wikipedia. This idea of of an encyclopedia is something that is really easy for, for everyone to share. If I say to you, encyclopedia entry about the Eiffel Tower, everybody in this room knows more or less what that's gonna look like. You're gonna, oh, it'll tell the history when was it built, why was it built, who was the architect, what was the cultural impact, there should be some pictures there. We pretty much know. We can fight about the details forever, and believe me, the Wikipedians will, but we all know what we're driving at for that. Um, Wikipedia is not a travel guide, so our entry on on the the Eiffel Tower won't tell you here's the five best restaurants nearby, here's this and that. We have a Wikivoyage, which is a travel site around that sort of thing. So the idea that it's an encyclopedia has been really important at gathering the community together, allowing people to understand what we're trying to accomplish together. Another core value, basic principle, is uh, NPOV, uh, neutral point of view. So the idea here is that on any controversial topic, Wikipedia itself should not take a stand on that topic, but should describe all of the major sides in a fair way. The idea here is that it's, it's both, a, a, I would say, a social idea and an epistemological idea. So the social idea is this is really the only way to get people to work together. If we're going to have a controversial issue, let's say, for example, um, abortion. So you can imagine a very kind and thoughtful Catholic priest and a very kind and thoughtful Planned Parenthood activist, and as long as they both understand that Wikipedia is not going to tell you whether or not abortion is good or bad, but is going to describe it so the, the priest will understand that Wikipedia can't sort of lead off saying abortion is a sin, but it can say a uh, Catholic church position on abortion is such and such, and the Pope has said this, and critics have responded that. And so then epistemologically, what's great about that is this is what I want from an encyclopedia. I don't want to come to an encyclopedia and hear only one side of the story. If I only want one side of the story, I can flick on whatever your favorite news channel is on TV. They're very good at telling you only one side of the story. But if I want an encyclopedia, I actually want to hear, I want to hear uh, an argument that I might agree with, and I want to hear the argument I might disagree with. I want to understand why people are saying the different things. And when this works well, that Catholic priest and that Planned Parenthood activists, and remember I specified that they're kind and thoughtful because that's very important, they can both point to the entry with pride and they can say, look, if you read this, you will understand the debate. Um, And that's really, really important. And that is really one of the most fundamental goals of Wikipedia is not to persuade people of any particular point of view, but to persuade them that learning and knowledge about the world is the best way to come to a particular point of view.
0: Progress, higher living standards and greater freedom around the world depends critically on maintaining the institutions of freedom, free exchange and free movement. In his new book, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, Cato senior fellow Johan Norberg destroys myths about trade and government intervention. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Cato Club 200 event in October.
4: So let me just run through a couple of facts about progress in the world. I I start with a 200-year perspective basically in the book. I present 10 reasons to look forward to the future. I'll only give you two highlights that I think summarize a lot of the progress that has gone on. 200 years ago, if we had redistributed all the wealth that existed in the world, all the income that existed in the world, the average person would have had a lower income than the average person in Mozambique today. Because at that time, Around 90% of all the people around the world lived in extreme poverty. Today, 9% of the world population lives in extreme poverty, which means that In the last few decades, for the first time in world history, we've also reduced the absolute number who live in poverty. Previously, it used to be that world population grew so fast so that even though the proportion might have been reduced, the absolute number didn't. But today, there are fewer people living in extreme poverty than 200 years ago. If that does not sound like progress, think about the fact that back then, only 60 million people around the world lived a life free from extreme poverty, 60 million people. Today, it's around 6.5 billion people. And the fastest progress has been made in the last 25 years. During this time, world population has grown by 2 billion people, and yet extreme poverty has been reduced by 1.25 billion, which means that every minute that I talk, another 100 people rise out of poverty. And it happens in the places that open up. In the places that give their people more freedom, more freedom to create, more freedom to trade. The other fact that I would like to highlight is life expectancy. Because if life expectancy continues to rise, then we are doing something right when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to health, and uh, when it comes to safety. 100 years ago, the average life expectancy in the world was 31 years, 31 years. A normal and quite brutal party at, um, at dinner parties I go to is to ask people around the table what they would have died from um, at an early age if, if they weren't born in our era. And it turns out, obviously, that everybody would have died whether they were one or five or, or 10 or something like that, uh, except for a, a few, few people, 31 years. Was the life expectancy back then? Today it is 71 years. Mostly it's because we've reduced child mortality dramatically, but also because we combat old age disease dramatically now as well. 200 years ago, there was not a single country around the world with a life expectancy longer than 40 years. Not even Great Britain, not America. Today, there's not a single country with a life expectancy shorter than 40 years, not even Somalia, Sudan, Swaziland, and so on. In some countries, actually, we've seen something amazing in the last 10 years. Some sub-Saharan African countries like Rwanda, Botswana, they've increased life expectancy by 10 years over the last 10 years, which means simplified, statistically at least, every person in that country got 10 years older But no one approached death by a single step. They could celebrate every birthday by not getting closer to death at all. But that happens here as well. Even though there are always laggards, there's always one particular group that does not catch up with the others. But there's a back and forth. And uh, sooner or later, most groups and most countries catch up. If we look at the best practice country around the world, the country that every year has had the highest life expectancy. Their life expectancy has increased by three months every year over the last 140 years. And if anything, it seems like that is accelerating, no matter what you hear on the news. And those are good years as well. According to a recent meta-review of the literature in in Lancet, And I quote, present evidence suggests that people are not only living longer than they did previously, but also they are living longer with less disability and fewer functional limitations, end of quote. So those are two facts that I think summarize a lot of things. If you want the other eight, you are going to have to go out there and get the book. And I've looked through the literature, I've studied all the research to try to get a great definition of progress, what what it's all about. And I found it um, in Robert Heinlein's uh, texts, the science fiction author, who explained that progress is not made by early risers. It's made by lazy men looking for easier ways to do things. And, And I think that's a perfect definition, because that's exactly what progress is about. It's not that we use more resources or anything like that, it's that we're. We do more things with the resources that are at our disposal. We are more creative, more ingenuity, and so that we create more things, better things, we solve more problems with the resources that are at our disposal. And therefore, Julian Simon was quite right when he explained that the ultimate resource in the world is the individual human being, the individual human brain. That's the ultimate resource, and it happens to be a reproducible resource, a pleasantly reproducible resource. In fact, the only resource that can be produced on an industrial scale by low-skilled labor. (laughs) And what does this resource do? Well, they all do three things, if they're free to do it. They explore, they experiment, and they exchange. They explore strange new ideas. And then they experiment with how to implement those ideas to solve new problems in satisfying our needs in a better way, in a cheaper way, in a faster way. Could Everything from artificial fertilizer to container shipping. And three, they exchange the results of this so that we do not need to know how to do all those things. We only need to know what we can do best, and then we can trade for the rest. We're therefore using the knowledge of others. We're making the world so smart so that we can, so that it's safe for us to be a bit stupid, I think. So free inquiry, freedom to innovate, and free trade. Unfortunately, the three things that the populists on the left and the right hate the most in our era and wants to destroy, uh, because they think there is too little progress Apparently, they say that the glass is half empty, and therefore, because there's not more in the glass, they want to just break the glass. But so far, despite their efforts, we've seen more progress. It has accelerated recently, because now it's not just the Western world that has opened up. Recently, with the introduction of huge economies like India and China in the world economy, with more free trade, with more capital flows, with more freedom for from the, from the individual human being, we have also seen more progress than ever before. Since I grew up, the number of free countries around the world, according to Freedom House, has doubled. According to the Economic Freedom of the World Index, we've seen tremendous progress. We've gone since 1980 from where India was before its reforms, to where Taiwan was after its reforms. If the world average of 1980 were to appear here today, it would have been the 144th out of 152 countries, actually a bit lower than, uh, than Zimbabwe today. So more people have more freedom than ever to do things, despite all the obstacles that we face. and. Therefore, it's no coincidence that in the last 25 years, hunger has almost halved around the world. Illiteracy has halved. Child mortality has been cut in half, and poverty has been reduced by three quarters. We've created almost as much wealth in the world in these last 25 years as we did in the 25,000 years previously, if we measure it by per capita income.
0: The financial crisis that gripped the U.S. economy in 2007 provided opportunities for people like then-Senator Barack Obama to quickly blame speculators and so-called greedy bankers. Former Senator Phil Graham, speaking at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November, detailed some inconvenient facts about the crisis that continues to impact today's economy.
5: I guess the title I would give to what I'm going to talk about is most of what you know is not so. Uh, And I'm going to talk about the financial crisis and the Great Recession, because I think it's a good time now that we're having a change in the administration to really go back and look at what happened uh, and compare it to what has been the accepted view as to what happened. I remember long ago, I was in a monetary history class, and an old economist named Hammond from the University of Chicago's book was our textbook. And he basically wrote about the monetary history of the country in the 19th century. Was a very great scholar. And immediately I recognized that everything I thought about monetary history was wrong. Uh, And it's still true. So let me start. First of all, the financial crisis triggered in the midst of a presidential election. And as a result, there was very little chance that there was going to be any kind of coherent discussion of the crisis. Obama immediately weaponized the crisis with quotes like, greedy bankers, unleashed when financial regulations were simply dismantled. Uh, And he went on to say they recklessly, uh, they took reckless risk in pursuit of quick profits and bonuses. Well, let me start with the first myth, which probably most of you have repeated because you've heard it so many times. When the financial crisis broke, banks had relatively low reserves and were highly leveraged. That statement is totally and verifiably false. Um, The FDIC, in looking at the capital asset ratio of insured commercial banks in 2007, just before the financial crisis, found that bank capital was at 10.2 percent 78% higher than it had been in 1978. The Federal Reserve Bank, looking at similar data on the capital to asset ratio of all insured financial institutions, found the capital ratio of 10.3% was almost double the 1984 level the first year they calculated that ratio. The FDIC, in the very month that Lehman went broke, uh, concluded that 98% of all FDIC-insured institutions with $13.5 trillion of assets were well capitalized. Only 43 institutions with $58 billion of assets were undercapitalized. The World Development Indicators put out by the World Bank in 2007 found that American banks were better capitalized than any other banks in the world. Now, what happened, uh, which no one knew at the time, is that over a period of time from 1985 to 2007, 31 million subprime loans had come into existence and were in force when the financial crisis occurred. And when the housing bubble broke, the collapse in the value of those mortgages and the securities that were backed up by those mortgages collapsed, and it destroyed the financial basis of the world's financial institutions. But the point is, They were better capitalized when it happened than the banks had been for the previous 30 years. The shock was so dramatic that it destroyed their capital base. As far as being over-leveraged and uh, uh, risk-taking, virtually all of the undercapitalization, virtually all of the risky behavior was occurring in government not in the private sector of the economy. And and just to start, let me just click through three things and be brief. The capital requirement for mortgage-backed securities based on an international regulation rated them virtually equivalent uh, to risk-free investments, and therefore they had very, very low capital requirements. That was a decision government made not a decision the private sector made. Beginning in 1995, the government set quotas for Freddie and Fannie, and by the time the wheels came off, 57 cents of of every dollar of assets Freddie and Fannie held were held in subprime loans. In terms of leverage, Freddie and Fannie were leveraged 75 to 1. 2.6 times as leverage as Lehman, and Lehman wasn't a bank. And where were the regulators? The regulators were conflicted because they had conflicting directions from Congress. One direction was safety and soundness, but the newer direction was CRA lending. Lending where the objective was to promote low-income housing, and where banks were forced in order to open a teller machine, or to merge with another bank, or open another branch to make and hold subprime mortgages. The second myth, banks had been deregulated over the last quarter century. Totally and absolutely false. Uh, In the quarter of a century prior to 2007, there were four major banking bills that nobody can argue that they weren't regulatory bills that expanded the regulatory power of financial regulators in America. The Competitive Equity Banking Act, SEBA of 1987, the Financial Institutions Reform and Recovery and Enforcement Act, FIREA, in 1989, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act, uh, FDICIA in 1991, and Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002, with beyond any question expanded regulatory authority in the United States. When you look at the whole debate, it all boils down to an argument that Graham Leach Bliley deregulated the banking industry. Now, let me make it clear before I talk about it, because I normally don't talk about Graham Leach Bliley because I'm the Graham. But I don't get any royalties. Um, if, If I thought something was wrong, I'd say so. Uh, So I'm not defending this because my name's on it. I'm simply trying to tell you what I perceive to be, believe to be, and think the evidence suggests to be the truth. Now, first of all, you need to understand that Glass-Steagall, like most major legislation, existed before the crisis existed in the Great Depression. Senator Glass had this idea that banks should make loans only on real bills. This was called the real bills doctrine, for those few of you that that are monetary historians. uh, I know it's a hard burden to bear, but in any case, the idea being that you couldn't cause inflation by lending on a real bill because it was backed up by real economic activities totally been totally discredited but that's what glass believed and glass had long wanted to split up banks taking out other functions other than narrow the narrow banking industry so when the depression occurred there was a problem he had a solution It had nothing to do with the Depression, and hence uh, we got uh, Glass-Steagall. He held a series of hearings to try to demonstrate that somehow banks were busy making loans for speculation in the stock market, but no one has ever demonstrated that fact. In fact, it's almost comical to go back and look at hearings that are cited in Supreme Court rulings as demonstrating something that is not in the hearing. In any case, um, so Glass-Steagall came into effect. Investment banking and commercial banking were separated. We were the only country in the world that did that. Um, And then over time, regulators started eroding the law, border put in between investment banking, commercial banking, by the time I became chairman of the banking committee, looked like Swiss cheese. City had been allowed to buy travelers, insurance. Uh, we, there was a Glass-Steagall Act, but it was not being taken seriously in regulations. And so let me first say Graham-Leach-Bliley was deregulatory only in a very, very narrow sense. It promoted more competition within the financial sector. It allowed bank holding companies to be engaged in banking, in securities, and in insurance. It did not deregulate anything. The same functions were regulated by the same regulators that had always been regulated by them. It did not repeal Glass-Steagall. Not that anybody cares, but every day uh, it repealed Glass-Steagall. Totally false. Glass-Steagall still applies to commercial banks, just as it did before.
0: Homeownership is part of the so-called American dream. But how has government made that goal less attainable? At the Cato Institute in November, senior fellow Randall O'Toole discussed the ways in which restrictions on land use and urbanization have put homeownership out of reach for millions of American families.
6: Homeownership is very valuable for many people. It helps people start small businesses. It helps people put kids through college. Uh, It provides uh, a better environment for learning. So children who live in homes that are owned who are in the same economic class as other children do better than children in the same economic class who live in homes that are rented. We used to, 100 years ago, America had the highest home ownership rates in the world. Today, we're in the middle. We're at the average level. And home ownership rate, as you can see, has nothing to do with uh, per capita income. Countries that are heavily regulated, like Germany and Switzerland, may have high per capita incomes, but low home ownership rates. Countries that are lightly regulated but have low per capita incomes, like Mexico and Brazil, can have much higher home ownership rates. The United States, if we look at, looked at it state by state, many American states that have less, less land use regulation have home ownership rates approaching 75%. And I think that, that's what we would have today if we didn't have these growth constraints. Another problem relates to income inequality. Uh, Thomas Piketty wrote this famous book saying that uh, the returns to capital are growing faster than economic growth in general, and so therefore, wealth must be concentrated in the hands of capitalists. And so therefore, wealth inequality was becoming a serious problem, and we needed government, government intervention to, to fix it. Well, an economist at MIT named Matthew Roanley took a look at his data. And he separated out wealth by asset class. And he found out, guess what? The growth in the value of stocks is not faster than economic growth. The growth in the value of bonds is not e- growing faster than economic growth. What the, the single asset class he could find that was growing faster than economic growth was housing. Why was housing growing faster? Because many developed countries have enacted strict land use regulations that are pushing up housing prices, and as I say, it's an example of urban elites declaring war on the working class. Our income inequality bottomed out in about 1968. And it's been growing since then. And I would argue it's been growing because of this warfare on uh, the working class. Uh, middle class, upper middle class people are just trying to keep working class people out of their neighborhoods. and So they're driving up housing prices and trying to force middle class, or working class people into rental housing. Now, the Supreme Court recently ruled in a case that said, uh, if land use rules make housing more expensive, uh, they violate the Fair Housing Act. So we don't have to go to communities and say, we need to convince your decision makers to uh, deregulate. We just need to say, does your community uh, harm low income minorities? Does, Does your land use regulations harm low income minorities? In San Francisco, I considered San Francisco to be the most racist urban area in America because the population of the region has grown by 10 percent between 2000 and 2010. The population of blacks in the region declined by 14 percent. Honolulu, Los Angeles, many of these other places with strict land use constraints, they're losing black populations. Honolulu is losing native Hawaiian populations because they can't afford to live there because of these rules. And under the the uh, uh, Supreme Court's rules. That means they're violating the Fair Housing Act, and they have to open up those urban growth boundaries and allow development to take place uh, on undeveloped land.
0: What lessons can be learned from the best welfare states? What damage is being done by failing welfare states? In The Welfare of Nations, a new book from the Cato Institute, author James Bartholomew examines welfare models in 11 vastly different countries, illuminating the advantages and disadvantages of other nations' welfare states, and delving into issues like literacy, poverty and inequality. This is a provocative contribution to understanding how welfare states, as the defining form of government today, are changing the very nature of modern civilization. Get your copy today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.